fulfilled prophecy. Not future prophecy, fulfilled prophecy. And I, and fulfilled prophecy is God's number one way of uh, authenticating His Word to us human beings. And fulfilled prophecy is something that's unique to the Bible. No other holy book has any fulfilled prophecy at all. Uh, some of them have prophecies, but they're still for way off in the future. And because there's so many fulfilled prophecies in the Bible, I am going to only concentrate on 125 of them. All of which are in Daniel chapter 11. This is one of the most powerful chapters in the in the Bible. And I just learned that really recently. Uh, before, I thought this was one of the most tedious and boring books in uh, the chapters in the Bible. It's right up there with Leviticus and Numbers. Uh, but when, when you really get into it, it just opens up and then it's, a, it's amazing. Uh, anyway, so let's start with Isaiah chapter 46. In verse, verse 9 and 10, it says, Remember the former times of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I shall do my pleasure. So there he is. He's saying, nobody can do what I can do. I can tell you the end from the beginning. And how God does this? Well, I don't know exactly. He does have this ability. Uh, but my suspicion is that God is a multidimensional being who created the space, mass, time, continuum. So none of those things have any barrier whatsoever to God. So he's omnipresent, and uh, he's in every space and every time, all at one time. That's, that's how I understand it. Um, and so when he's in my space and time, I am the focus of his attention. When he's in your space and time, you are the focus of his attention. He even says that he knows when a sparrow falls. So when... He's in the space and time of a bird. He, that bird is the focus of his attention. God is incredibly awesome. Uh, he can do that. And he can give us pinpoint accurate history in advance. And this is what he's going to do in Daniel chapter 11. Uh, but first, I'll set it up just a little bit more. If you go to Daniel chapter 10... Verse 1, it says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. Okay. That date, the experts will tell us, third year of Cyrus, is 536 B.C. And there's going to be a controversy with Daniel chapter 11. Was it written prior 
to 536 B.C.? Or was it written after the events in Daniel chapter 11? And they, the, the people who late date it, that's what that's called, late dating, they think it was written between 162 and 165 B.C. So anyway, we'll move on to Daniel chapter 11, 11.1. Also, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. This is an angel talking. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Okay, so Daniel is being told that after Darius the Mede, there's going to be three more Persian kings and then a fourth Persian king who's going to be the richest of them all. He'll preside over the Persian Empire when it's at its very peak in power. And he is going to attack Greece. And he did. His dad had attacked Greece in 490 B.C. And thanks to bad weather and other and brilliant military strategy by the Greeks, they were defeated. And they, it was a very unexpected defeat. But they had to limp back to Persia. Anyway, dad dies. And this other Persian king, who history tells us his name was Xerxes, he's the king who's in the book of Esther. Uh, and, and he was the richest one. And so he wanted to get revenge on the Greeks, so he attacked the Greeks in 480 B.C. And he loses also. But during these battles with the Greeks, they did a lot of damage. They killed a lot of Greeks. Um, they, told, they burned down a lot of buildings. So the Greeks learned to hate the Persians with a passion. And this is going to come into play here in a little bit. Um, but he had an army of two million men. The Greeks didn't even have two million people. So there's no way they should have won that. The Greeks shouldn't have won twice. Both times they had giant armies and were defeated twice. Anyway, I think God's hand was on that. I think these were supernatural storms that sunk their ships and other problems they had. Um but God wanted the Greek culture to dominate the Middle East, and he wanted the Greek language to be taught to everyone in the Middle East. Anyway, our next section here in Daniel 11 is, we'll start with verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion, and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided towards the four winds of heaven. But not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. Okay, that's difficult language. But this is, but the secular history behind this, this guy is Alexander the Great. He's also mentioned in Daniel chapter 8, uh, where it mentions uh, a ram and a goat. The ram would be Persia, the goat would be Greece. 
and there's a prominent horn in the middle of the head of the goat, and this prominent horn is going to attack the, the ram and defeat it and trample it to the ground. And that's going to be Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was, I mean, if, I don't think any human being deserves the title the Great, but if anybody did, it was him. Uh, when he was just a little kid, his mom and dad knew they had something special on their hands. When he was 14, his dad wanted to further his education, so he went out and bought the best teacher, bought him, <laughs> the best teacher that he could find to make him his personal teacher, and this uh, teacher's name was Aristotle. Uh, that's when he was 14. When he was 18, he becomes the commander of a cavalry, uh, cavalry regiment. He's also named the ambassador to Athens, and also he's given the task of inventing a language for the Greek people. The Greeks were divided. They were a bunch of warring city-states. They each had their own dialect. The dialects were so different from one another that they could barely understand one another, although it all fell under the heading of Greek. So Alexander visited every major city-state, learned their dialects, then came back and whittled this language down. He, would, he, he wanted to keep an even balance between the different dialects so they each had about the same amount of words in this brand new language. But he also wanted to get rid of all redundant words because this was going to be a military language. He wanted one word to mean one thing. And he was going to teach this language to his army so that when they barked orders to the army, the army know exactly what he meant. There would be no confusion. This language is highly important because this is what the, the New Testament is written in. Koine Greek. That's the word means, koine means common. And it means our language, our Greek language. And this was going to be one of the unifying principles of making Greece a nation rather than a bunch of city-states. Anyway, when he's 20, he, his dad dies, and he becomes the king of Macedonia. And by the way, his dad had already conquered Greece militarily, but not he didn't have their hearts. Alexander, through diplomacy, talked to all the leaders that had been conquered and won them over to his cause. And his cause was to create one solid Greek country and we're going to go and we're going to conquer the world. <laughs> and we're going to kill uh, the, the Persian Empire to do it. And they hated the Persians anyway, and they bought into all this stuff. So he creates this army, the historians say, of roughly 35,000 men. The Persians still had about a 2 million man army, so that meant they were outnumbered over 50 to 1. And they were confident that they would, would win. Um, anyway, so they take off, and, as, and they decide that what they're going to do is they're going to live off the land. And what that meant was we're going to steal everything we need to survive. That's right. They would just march through, and if they needed food, they'd take it. If they needed lumber, they'd take it. Whatever they needed, they'd take. 
But in addition to that, it also meant that they were going to have to destroy every walled city between Greece and Persia. Every one of them. The reason is because they were all in the Persian Empire and they were afraid that if they left these cities standing that they would attack them from the rear and that would ruin all their plans. So starting in the very east, or the very west coast of what's now called Turkey, they did that. Every city along the way, they destroyed it. And guess what one of the cities in their way was? It was Jerusalem. What are the Jews going to do? They sent out a delegation of priests, all dressed up in their priest clothes. And they went out to Alexander the Great before he arrived, and they said, Look, Alexander, you're in our Bible. They showed him Daniel 8. They showed him Daniel 11. And he was convinced that that was himself. After all, it said right there in Daniel 8, the prominent horn is the first king of Greece. And he was the first king of Greece. Um, Daniel was so overwhelmed, I mean, not Daniel, Alexander was so overwhelmed by that that he fell down before the priest, prostrated himself before the high priest. And, you know, they told him, get up, we're on your team here. We, you don't have to do that. But he, Alexander, became completely convinced that he could not die until he conquered Persia at that point. When he learned that, he became ultra-super-aggressive. Uh, for example, when they would charge the enemy lines on their horses, he was the first man to hit the enemy because he would get on the fastest horse and he would be the man that would be out front wearing his king clothes so he stuck out like a sore thumb and he would hit the lines first. When they had to lay siege to these walled cities and then they would have to scale the walls by throwing these ladders up, guess who was number one guy up the ladder? Alexander. This army was in over a hundred battles. And many of these battles were after this encounter with Jerusalem. Alexander Great not only survived all of these battles, being the number one guy, he hardly got a scratch on him. Again, I think God had his hand of protection around this guy. His troops noticed this, and they revered him. And they were convinced that some deity of some sort was protecting him. And they followed him anywhere, and they would do anything for him. Anyway, he goes on. He conquers Persia. He even goes further than that. He winds up in India, and he... Um, he conquers everything that he wanted to conquer there. Finally, his army said, we're done. We're finished. We're not going any further. Yeah, we know you want to go to China and conquer that too, but we're not going. <laughs> and so he had to go back. But he was sick now. Very, very sick. He was only 33 years old. He makes it back to Shushan, which is also mentioned in the Bible. And he dies there. And when he's on his deathbed, they ask him, well, who's going to be the king? He had three kids. Some historians say only two, but he had two boys. And he said, let it go to the strong. Okay, who's that? <laughs> That's right, fight for it. Um, so his generals 
wanting to keep this empire going, do keep it going. And, and by the way, that was in 323 BC when Alexander dies. They held this empire together until 311. But these people were very ambitious. They, yeah, all that stuff. They wanted, and they thought they were more competent than all the other guys to fulfill Alexander's dream of Hellenizing the whole world. The Greeks referred to themselves as Hellenes, and so when they Hellenized somebody, they would teach in the Greek language, they would wear Greek clothes, they would do things the Greek way, and they would expand the Greek culture. All these generals wanted to do this, but it, it, it dissolves after this. Uh, it, they become warring factions. And when the secular people, like in the Bible, you know it's divided by four. When the secular people talk about it, they like to say, no, there were six, seven, eight different guys. You know, it wasn't four. Um, but that was only from 311 to about 304. After the fighting was, the initial fighting was done, it settled down to four. Uh some guy named Cassander got Macedonia and Greece. Lysimachus got Thrace and Asia Minor. Some guy named Ptolemy gets Egypt. And he's going, and he and all of his descendants are going to be known as the kings of the south. Seleucus gets Syria and Mesopotamia, and his descendants are going to be known as the kings of the north. And they're going to be the guys in chapter 11. That's all people were worried about because they are the only ones that have an impact on Israel. This is Israel's history. Nobody else's. So, now we can go to verse 5. Also, the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes. He shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be great. Shall be a great dominion. Okay, this is referring to Ptolemy, and also one of his princes, uh, Seleucus. Seleucus was actually under um, Ptolemy when Alexander was the head of the army, but then he was given a section of uh, the empire to administrate, and he found himself having a powerful army, so he said, I'm, I'm going to be the head of this. Um, and both of these were the two strongest groups. And one would be in the north, one would be in the south, and Israel would be right smack dab in the middle. So that was a problem for Israel because they'd fight over it. Verse 6. At the end of some years, now this is after the original Ptolemy and the original Seleucus die, uh, at the end of some years they shall join forces for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand. But she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. Okay, what does that mean? When you read it without understanding the history, it becomes... Nonsense. You can't understand what is being said. So I'm going to give you the secular history on this. 
And what happened was Ptolemy II's daughter, we're beyond Ptolemy I, Ptolemy II's daughter named Bernice marries Antiochus II. Now all the Seleucids, that's what they call the descendants of Seleucus, uh, there was four of them named Seleucus, and there was four of them named Antiochus. The Ptolemies, all of them are named Ptolemy, every one of them. And that's spelled with a P. The P is silent. Okay, so they know they got strong armies. They don't want to fight because, you know, that's self-destructive. So uh, they come up with a peace treaty. And in this peace treaty, this Bernice who's the daughter of Ptolemy II, becomes the wife of Antiochus II. There's a problem. Antiochus II already had a wife and a kid. So part of this deal is he's going to divorce his wife and he's going to disown his kid. But that was for the good of the empire. Uh, so Bernice moves up there, and what do you know? She gets, she gets pregnant. She has a kid, also a boy. So now this boy becomes the heir to the throne. But his old wife, who's named Laotis, or yeah, Laodicea or something like that, she, um, she's not killed. He didn't hate her. He didn't hate his kid. This was just done for the good of the, the, the government. And uh, so they still live in the palace. <laughs> and she sees her opportunity to poison the whole family and takes it and kills them all. That's the part where it says that the daughter of the king of the south, she shall not retain her power. Well, yeah, when you're dead, you don't retain your power. And neither he, that's her husband, Antiochus II, he gets killed too. Neither he nor his authority shall stand you know, he's dead. Uh, his, his kid's dead. But now she shall be given up. That's Bernice. She's dead too. And those who brought her, she came up with an entourage of servants to make her stay in the north more comfortable. This Laotis killed all them too. And with him who begot her, now, who begot Bernice? Ptolemy II, her dad. That's right. Ptolemy II just dies a natural death back in Egypt. So, so now, naturally, her brother, who's the new king in Egypt, he's Ptolemy III, in verse 7 and 8, he wants revenge. But from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place who will come with an army, enter the fortress of the king in the north, and deal with them and prevail. Notice how he calls, how God calls Ptolemy III, her, Bernice's brother, how he refers to him. He says, the branch of her roots. <laughs> but that means her brother. You see, it's strange language. We don't understand it. So it becomes nonsense to us until we hear the history. Um, so anyway, he goes up there. He devastates the whole northern kingdom, steals a whole bunch of wealth, 
and kills Laodice, the old wife. But the boy, who was her son, he becomes the king up in the north. He, they don't kill him. I'm not sure why, but he survives and becomes the new king of the north. And his name is Seleucus II. Anyway, verse 8, And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. So he'll outlive the, the king of the north, Seleucus II. Okay, 9 and 10. Seleucus II, he wants to get revenge because they killed his mom. So he goes down south and attacks them, and he gets stomped. So he's got to go back home. I'll read it here in the Bible. Also, the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the, of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. That means he loses. However, his sons, now you notice that's in plural. Got two of them. Shall stir up strife. And assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. Okay, again, it's hard to deal with, but I'll give you the secular history, and you see how it matches up. Seleucus II had two boys, Seleucus III and Antiochus III. Every Seleucid is going to be named either Antiochus or Seleucus. And these guys were brothers. Now, back in these days, the older brothers would kill the younger brothers so they didn't have to worry about the younger brothers killing the older brother. Uh, but these two guys got along great. And they had plans. They wanted to build up the north, and they wanted to, you know, make a name for themselves. So Seleucus III, the older brother, gets to be the king, and Antiochus III is like the co-regent. I mean, they're, they're kind of equals, but the one gets the title of king. And anyway, they build up their army, and they decide they're going to take over this whole empire, and they'll run it the way they're sure Alexander would have done it. Uh, Seleucus III goes into Asia Minor to conquer that, and Antiochus III goes down south to conquer that at the same time. But Seleucus III is murdered by some conspirators, and so that fails. So that makes Antiochus III the king all by himself. Now we'll go to verse 11. And the king of the south shall be moved with rage, because he's being attacked by Antiochus III, and go out and fight with him. With the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. Antiochus III will win. Ptolemy IV attacks Antiochus III. For a little while, he's successful, but eventually he loses. He actually had the opportunity to knock him out. But instead, he decides after a few early battles... They he'll go become a tourist and see the Middle East. And one of the places he wanted to visit was Jerusalem. He heard about their temple there, and he wanted to go into the Holy of Holies. And you know what happened? 
he got paralyzed. Something happened to him. He became paralyzed, so he couldn't make the trip. So he didn't get to go into the Holy of Holies. God was going to reserve that for somebody else. Um, Verse 13. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than former, and he shall certainly come at the end of some years with a... Okay, that's kind of boring, but it's just battles are going back and forth between north and south. And... uh, Anyway, let's start with verse 14. Now in these times, many shall rise up against the king of the south. So, okay, the king of the south is evidently very strong, so they decide we need to gang up on this guy. Uh, The king of the north is going to become allies with Philip of Macedonia. And... (laughs) They are going to attack together. Furthermore, there was a bunch of Jewish people who didn't like the Ptolemies anymore. The original Ptolemies, like Ptolemy II, for example, were very Jew-friendly. In fact, it was Ptolemy II who commissioned the production of the Septuagint. And that the Septuagint was written between... 285 and 270 B.C. Now, that's a translation of the Hebrew Bible. And the book of Daniel is one of those books that gets translated. So that means the book of Daniel had to pre-exist 270 B.C., right? And we think, of course, it was written in the 500s. Okay. Um, so anyway, but the, the Ptolemies got worse and worse as far as their treatment for the Jews. They were the ones that controlled Israel at this point in time. But Antiochus III is going to change that. Um, let's see, where am I at here? Yeah. For your people shall... Also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision. In other words, Jewish people are going to join in on this attack. Uh, Verse 15, So the king of the north shall come and build a siege man and shall take a fortified city, and the forces of of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will and... No one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. The glorious land is Israel. Antiochus Antiochus III is successful in defeating the king of the south. And he makes Israel a province of the north. Which all the Jews were really happy about that. Until they found out who Antiochus IV was. Because he's going to be the worst persecutor of the Jews in history up until even today. Now, there's a future Antichrist that's going to be even worse than him, but so far he's number one. Uh, I'll give you a little bit of the history on this. Antiochus III recovers from a defeat. Ptolemy IV dies, which vacates Egypt's throne. Ptolemy V takes over, but Ptolemy V is only six years old. So that meant 
<laughs> to Antiochus the third, I think I can take this six-year-old because they're going to be mismanaged. Now, he had handlers to help him, so it wasn't like he was making the decisions, but he's just a six-year-old kid. So Antiochus Third invades Egypt. Antiochus Third and Philip of Macedon invade together. Uh, many Jews were with them. And Antiochus III did as he pleased and placed Israel under the sovereignty of the north. Now we'll move to verse 17. He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and the upright ones with him, that's upright Jews, thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it. Now pay attention to that. He's going to give them the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or before him. What's he talking about? Again, this makes no sense to us until we know the history. Antiochus third wanted to conquer the south but he and he won battles in fact he won all the battles but he he didn't have enough to take the whole place so he backs off and he says okay let's make a treaty with them in the meantime under our treaty we'll rebuild our forces we'll go in there and get them later and and, and as part of this treaty he's going to give them his daughter who's named cleopatra uh, but this is not the one you're thinking of the, the, the one you're thinking of won't be born for another 90 years. She's a Ptolemy. This Cleopatra is a Seleucid. <laughs> so Elizabeth Taylor is the later one. Yeah, yeah. Elizabeth Taylor is the later one. S-E-L-E-U-C-U-S is Seleucus, and Seleucid would just end in C-I-D. <laughs> okay, so... He, he gives the king of the north, Cleopatra, as part of this peace treaty. And she's instructed to embed herself in this family, gain their confidence, and be a spy. And send information back to dad that they can use to destroy the south. Cleopatra is only 12 years old. And you know who she marries? She marries Ptolemy V. Do you remember him? I just mentioned him a minute ago. The six-year-old kid. That's right. He's now ten. He's now ten. So this 12-year-old and this 10-year-old get married. And so they grow up together. What do you know? They fall in love. Each one with the other. They become a happily married couple. And she tells... Ptolemy V about how she's supposed to be a spy, he goes, we can use that. She became a double spy. She, she funneled information back to the north, but it was all wrong information, so that, that screwed them all up. And that, that's what took place. And you can see that when you read it. She, you know, she's called the daughter of women. I don't know why, but she is. To destroy it, that's the spy part, but she, she won't do that. Verse 18. After this, he shall return his face to the coastlands, that means Europe, and shall take many. But a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end, 
and with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Okay, again, what on earth does that mean? And let me read 19.2. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. Okay, this is Antiochus the Third still, and he gets the title Antiochus the Great, by the way. Uh, what the Bible doesn't tell us is he and a guy named Hannibal are in communication with one another. And Hannibal says, I'm going to attack Rome from one side. You attack them from the other side. We'll both win. And so Antiochus III thought, okay, that sounds good. I'll try that. He goes up to Greece and he finds out, what do you know, there's still a Roman army there. They haven't moved all their forces over to take on Hannibal. And this guy's name is Scipio. In some Bibles, it doesn't say ruler. It says um, commander. Uh, so anyway, it, it's a Roman general. Antiochus III shows up, and he's told, go home. You're forbidden to attack Greece. And Antiochus III says, yeah, I don't take orders from you. We're attacking Scipio clobbers them. Not only that, they got to go home, they retreat, but Rome penalizes them. He puts this giant debt on them that they have to pay. And he, yeah, they, the, the, the Romans won, so they penalized the Greeks. The Greeks have to pay this penalty and go back home. But anyway, when it says he stumbles and falls, his horse stumbled. And the horse threw him off. He fell down off the horse and died. And so that's the end of Antiochus III. Now we'll move on to 20. His kid, Seleucus IV, becomes the king. There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days <clears throat> he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. So Seleucus IV is saddled with this giant debt that he has to pay. And the Romans take his son, uh, Demetrius, in collateral. So Demetrius moves to Rome to be a hostage until this final payment of the debt takes place. And... So he has to tax everybody up to their eyeballs to pay for this, and he hires this treasurer to help him with this, and this treasurer gets the idea that he can become the king. So what does he do? He poisons uh, Seleucus IV. And they catch him, the treasurer. So they kill him too. So now we got this political problem in the kingdom of the north. The heir apparent to the throne is a hostage in Rome. So who's going to be the king? Well, that's where Antiochus IV, our prototype for the future uh, Antichrist, is going to seize the opportunity. And he's going to become the king, even though he's really not the heir to the throne. He is a son of Antiochus III. Okay? So he is royalty. But he's not the next guy up to be king. 
And Seleucus IV, by the way, is his brother, the guy that gets poisoned. So, with Demetrius gone, uh, Antiochus IV, well, I'll mention him here in the Bible. Let's just go to uh, verse 21. And in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty. But he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. With the force of a flood they shall be swept away from before him and be broken and also the prince of the covenant. Antiochus comes in with a bunch of backdoor politicking. He gets hold of the most influential people in the kingdom and promises them favors. And he also promises steal money from these other people in our kingdom that don't support us. <laughs> and I'll use the money I steal from them to give to you. Demetrius is in Rome and he's, he's just a hostage. This is Antiochus IV, also known as Antiochus Epiphanes. He's a prototype of the future Antichrist. He's, he, he really is a vile person. Um, so... Um, and when it says prince of the covenant, that's the high priest. Now, Antiochus III was a Jew-friendly leader. He let the Jews, he didn't try to Hellenize them. He didn't try to force it on them. But Antiochus IV, he does try to enforce Hellenization on the Jews. And the Jews did not like it, at least the godly ones. Actually, most of the Jews did like it, but the minority group, the devout ones, they didn't like it. Um, well, the high priest, whose name was Onias, he's the prince of the covenant. He was pro-Ptolemy <laughs> because now the kings of the north are the ones persecuting the Jews. And so they just get rid of him. They say, you're not the high priest anymore, and they replace him with somebody else. Verse 23, and after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. That's his backers. Uh, verse 24, he shall enter peaceably even to the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done. For his forefathers, or nor his forefathers, he shall disperse among them plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. Again, there's that um, spread, you know, dividing the loot, redistributing the money. Verse 25, he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up the battle with a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Okay, what does that mean? Well, this is now Ptolemy the Sixth, who is the son of Cleopatra and Ptolemy the Fifth. They're dead now. And they are planning an attack on the king of the north. But the people in the north find out about this. And so Antiochus IV launches a preemptive attack to beat him to the punch. And he, he wins. 
And so he becomes kind of a hero to the kingdom of the north. So now that solidifies him as the king. They say, forget that Demetrius and forget that paying the Romans. They can have him. You know, we don't care. And that's what happens. You never hear of Demetrius again. Uh, anyway, with this victory over Egypt, it was, it was kind of easy because Egypt was having problems because it turns out that Cleopatra and Ptolemy V had two kids. Ptolemy the sixth and Ptolemy the seventh. <laughs> now they had other names too, but but I'm going to keep track of them by their numbers because I can't pronounce their names, and everybody's going to forget them all anyway. Actually, I wrote down what their names were. Philometer was Ptolemy the sixth. Yeah, Philometer and Fiscan was the name of Ptolemy the seventh. Anyway, these two guys did not get along. And so one would, no, no, they don't. They don't kill one another, but they try to undermine everything that, that they do. Like the younger one would, would be subversive to the older one, to make him look bad. And so that helped the north beat the south. And so Antiochus notices this. And so he goes, well, they're destroying themselves. There's no point in fighting these people. I'll just back off, let them destroy one another, then I'll come in and it'll be way more easy, which sounds like a good uh, plan. I mean, it really was a good plan, but these guys reconciled. They said, we lost because we're fighting against one another. Let's bury the hatchet and let's become united. Yeah, it's a soap opera, isn't it? And uh, it would make a great miniseries on television. Um, so anyway, he decides to attack again the Antiochus, and he better get there quick before they're too united. But when he gets there, he finds out that um, that these Egyptians not only united themselves, but they became allies with Rome. And now we're going to read about Rome. Uh, verse 26, yes, those who eat, well, this is still Egypt. Yes, those who eat the portion of his delicacies, that's his brother, shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away and many shall fall down slain. Both these kings, okay, now this is Antiochus IV and Seleucus the Sixth. Both of these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil. They shall speak lies at the same table. This is a peace treaty. But it shall not prosper, for the end will, will be at the appointed time. While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant. Now this is um, Antiochus IV. He's decided to back off. So on his way back to the north, he goes through Israel. And when he does, this is 170 B.C., he attacks the Jews. He hates Jews with a passion. And he does all sorts of rotten things to them. Um, but this isn't the worst. The worst atrocities are going to come in a few years. But anyway, he goes back to the north. And then later he decides he's going to attack. And then, let's see, verse 30. 
Oh, verse 29. At the appointed time, he shall return and go towards the south. So he's going to attack him again. He expects to win again, just like he did the first time. But it shall not be like the former or the latter. For the ships from Cyprus shall come up against him. Therefore, he shall be grieved. Okay, now who are these ships from Cyprus? Who would care about Cyprus? Well, it was a Roman naval base. These are Romans. They bring their army down. And here he is, expecting to conquer the south. And who does he see? The Roman army. The, the Romans send out an emissary. They don't even send out a general. They send out some flunky to go out there and tell him, you are forbidden to attack Egypt. And so he doesn't like being spoken to in that fashion. So he goes, well, you know, I'm going to need some time to consider this decision. And this emissary takes a stick, draws a circle around him, and says, you're going to give me your answer before you step out of that circle, or we're going to destroy your entire army right now. Well, that's very embarrassing. <laughs> he's standing in this circle, and he's got to make a decision. Yeah. <laughs> And so he knows that there's no chance in a million he's going to win this battle with the Romans. And so he goes, okay, we'll go home. But now he's mad, really mad, and he's got to go back home. And he goes back home through Israel. This is in 167 B.C. And when he goes through Israel this time, this is when he sets up this statue of Zeus in the, the temple he slaughters a pig on the altar. He comes up with all sorts of other very difficult rules to live with if you're a Jewish person. First of all, all Jewish people are expected to observe his birthday every month. He was born on the 25th of some month. I don't even know what it was. December. Was it December? It was December 25th. Really? Okay, but they've got to observe his birthday every December, uh, every month, and they've got to kill a pig as as a sacrifice to Antiochus the Fourth, and they have to eat pig flesh. Uh, he makes the Bible illegal, and if you own a Bible, it's death penalty for you. And he dismantles the uh, whole priesthood. He wants to wipe out Judaism completely. Well, this is going to begin the Maccabean uh, revolt. They finally had enough. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about here in a little bit. Verse 31. Oh, well, I've got to finish off verse 30. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. He had a lot of Jews on his own side. They were in favor of that. The minority group is who revolted. Those were the believing Jews. And forces shall be mustered by him and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress and they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. That's that statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. Those are Jewish people. They're helping him. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Eventually, they're going to win. 
And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame, meaning they'll be burned to death, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with little help, but many shall join them by intrigue. Now, what does that mean? That means... Exactly. Guerrilla warfare. And they kind of nickled and dimed them to death. And so Antiochus was forced to give it up. Not only that, but by providence or by luck, the Parthians were attacking the northern, the northeastern portion of, of, of Antiochus's kingdom. And the Parthians were a real threat. Even the Romans couldn't conquer the Parthians. So they had to put most of their forces up there, and they couldn't really deal with the Jews. So that helped the Jews win. Um, no, the Parthians were yet another ethnic group from like up in Russia somewhere. Yeah, it could have been them. I'm not sure who they were or what they're called now, but they were a very difficult to deal with group. Uh, oh, by the way, that uh, when they set up the, the uh, statue of Zeus, that was on December the 16th, 167 B.C. So, the Maccabean revolt worked, uh, and, and they, in, in late, in December of 164 B.C., that's when we get the festival of uh, Hanukkah. It's because of that uh, Maccabean revolt. Well, what about this controversy? How do we know that we're in the right and that the book was written in, uh, in the five, be prior to 536 B.C.? Again, who, who late dated this stuff? Uh, they, they think it was written between, the late daters think it was written between 162 and 165 B.C., and, of course, the atheists don't believe it because to believe it was written in 500 means you have to believe in God. You have no choice because that's a miracle. This is too specific. It's too detailed. There's no way around it. This is a miracle. Um, so the atheists don't believe. Well, what about the Hindus, Buddhists, and Muslims? They don't know what to believe because they do believe in miracles, but... They don't have any evidence to say it was written in 162 B.C. None whatsoever. The atheists don't either. They just do it because of a logical deduction. There is no God, so therefore there are no miracles. This would be a miracle if it was written in the 500s by Daniel. So there are no miracles, so therefore it wasn't written by Daniel in the 500s. That's how they think. That's all they got. We have actual, we, we think like this, if, if there's God, then there are miracles. We have evidence that was written prior to 536, therefore this is a true miracle from God. Now, by the way, the atheists are using circular reasoning to get to their conclusion. Okay, well, who else uses late dating? You would expect only unbelievers, right? But... That's not true. The liberal theologians also are late daters. 
basically liberal theology is just a compromise with atheism. And so they believe everything the atheists believe. They're, they're, they're like the Sadducees of the biblical times. They don't believe in miracles. What other Christians also... Well, they, they're not late daters, but they also do not teach fulfilled prophecy. They just don't do it. Well, they'd be ones, but there are many Protestant groups as well. And they're the amillennial people. To believe in amillennialism, you cannot take future prophecy literally. Okay? But if you study fulfilled prophecy, you see a pattern develop. There's a prophecy. There's a literal fulfillment. There's a prophecy. There's a literal fulfillment over and over and over again. Every fulfilled prophecy is literally fulfilled from the, from the original prophecy. And that puts in people's minds... Well, we, we, when we see a prophecy of the future, we ought to take that literally also. Well, that undoes the amillennial point of view. So what do the amillennial churches do? They ignore it completely. They do not teach their congregation or their kids growing up in their youth groups about this. And this is the best proof of the existence of God. This is how God authenticates His Word. So no wonder... There's many kids growing up in these Christian churches and they walk away from Christianity thinking there's no proof of God. But there's solid proof. Solid. And I'll give it to you in here in a second after I answer Bob's question. Okay, well, an amillennial person believes there is no literal fulfillment of the millennial reign of Christ as it's given in uh, the book of Revelation. They also don't believe there's a tribulation period. They also don't believe there's a literal antichrist coming in the future. They think things just move along as they are now, and then Jesus comes back someday, and we go into the new heavens and the new earth. So they can't believe in literal fulfillment, or it's over. So they just ignore it. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a shame that they do that. And by the way, the amillennial people and the postmillennial people make up seven-eighths of all forms of Christianity. We are a tiny minority that will teach literal fulfillment. <laughs> well, what are some of the proofs that we have that Daniel wrote the book of Daniel prior to 536 B.C.? Well, for us, one of them is in Matthew 24, verse 15, where Jesus calls Daniel a prophet. Now, this is why this is a big deal. Because if Jesus calls Daniel a prophet, and he's a fictitious character that didn't prophesy anything, then Jesus is wrong. And that makes Jesus a false prophet. And if Jesus is a false prophet, we've got the wrong religion. That's how big a deal this eschatology is. If, and that's why when you hear people, you know, talking about, well, amillennial, premillennial, you know, it'll all pan out in the end. It doesn't really matter. Let's all get along. 
No, it's a bigger deal than you think because this affects how you're going to teach your congregation, especially the kids. Well, this is going to have no impact at all on an unbeliever, like an atheist, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim. They're not going to care what Jesus said. But there's other evidence. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6, verses 8, 12, and 15, refers to the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. Well, why is that significant? See, when we read it, not knowing the history, we think, okay, right, Medes and Persians. The first king of this empire was a Mede, Darius. After that, they were all Persians. And there was like 12 or 13 of them. At first, it was called the kingdom of the Medes and Persians in Babylonian times or in the early part of their kingdom. But later, it became known as the kingdom of the Persians and Medes. Later yet than that, it became known as the Persian Empire. Well, if you lived in 162, it hadn't been called the kingdom of the Medes and Persians for over 400 years. That's an indicator that was written during the time when it was actually called the Medes in, uh, Kingdom of Medes and Persians. Uh, Darius threw Daniel in the lion's den. Well, who knew about lion's dens in 162 B.C.? The Greeks are in charge. They had forgotten that. The Persians didn't do that anymore. So again, this is an indicator that it was written during the time that it actually occurred. Uh, the Bible tells us Medes and Persian kings could not change their own laws. Once they had a law, they had to keep their own law. Well, almost no royalty had to do that. Again, the Greeks had taken over. They had taken over since 323 B.C. Now it's 162 B.C. So that was over 150 years later. They, the, a person in, at that time, 162, would not know about this rule that the, the Mede and Persian uh, kings had. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar says that God will put the basis of men on the throne. Now what we don't know is that Nebuchadnezzar's dad was just a peasant. Uh, and he got to be the king. Uh, again, nobody in 162 would have known that about a Babylonian king. This was under rubble. This wasn't discovered until archaeologists in the last hundred years dug up. People in 162 wouldn't have known that. In 1 Maccabees, Daniel, the book of Daniel, is quoted by Mattathias. He's the guy that started the Maccabean revolt. And he quotes the book of Daniel. But... This Mattathias dies in 166 B.C., which is before the late daters say the book of Daniel was even written, which is impossible. So it did not happen that way. And, and then the first Maccabees is one of those intertestamental books. You'll find it in a Catholic Bible. You won't find it in... Our Bible, because it teaches accurate history, because it was written at the time of the history, but it teaches false theology. 
It's, it's works-oriented stuff, which is why the Catholic Church like it so much. Okay, in Baruch 1 and Baruch 2, Belshazzar is mentioned. Well, what's the significance of that? That's from the book of Daniel. That's right. And nobody in secular history mentioned Belshazzar. Going all the way back to 450 B.C., no one in 162 B.C. would have, would have understood that. Uh, and why would the books, why would the Jews accept a book written in their own time about a fictitious person, Belshazzar, and about events that took place in his life, like the handwriting on the wall, if, if it was written in their own time? They wouldn't accept that because these were the most devout Jews of all that won this revolt. See, they, they were dedicated to the Bible totally. Uh, I mentioned the Septuagint was written uh, between 285 and 270 B.C. Ptolemy II was the guy that commissioned that. It was interesting the way they did it. They got 72, not 70, but 72 Jewish scholars to translate, and they would stick each one in their own private room, and then they would see what came out. <laughs> did they translate it all the same? And they did. And they translated the whole uh, book like that, the whole Old Testament like that. Uh, and in Daniel 8, verse 2, um, there's a city mentioned, Shushan, and it says it's in the province of Elam. Now, when we read that, we think, why did God tell us? That? Well, I mean, is he just wasting his time? Does he want to make a bigger book? Well, Shushan... Or, all, or Susa in some Bibles, was in the province of Elam during the, the Babylonian time frame. But when new conquerors came through, they redrew the uh, boundaries of all these different provinces. So Shushan was no longer in the province of Elam. Again, no one who's lived in 165 to 162 B.C. would have known that. So the Bible... The book of Daniel was definitely written by Daniel prior to 536 B.C. During the Babylonian era. Yeah, and you'll find that in Daniel chapter 8, verse 2, if you want to read it. And it'll mention, I think, there that uh, who was in charge you know, because that's when he got some sort of vision from somebody about the ram and the goats and all that. So that's my talk. And I know that's complicated, but it just impacted me a lot because our Bible study group that I lead during the winter, um, I had to study it. <laughs> and that's the only reason that I studied it so hard is because I was the leader. So that was my job. And uh, when I first started reading the Bible, when I was first saved, I would read it and I'd go, you know, I can't understand a word it's saying. It meant nothing to me. Nothing. Once I read the Bible through the second time, I just skipped it. You know, why read something you know you're not going to understand? Eventually, I got to the point where um, I heard somebody say, that the history was accurate. So if you learn anything, just learn everybody 
regardless of their religious background, agrees that the history is right on the button accurate. Uh, just a second. Um, and, and so that satisfied me for a long time. But this past winter, I had to actually learn what the real history was, and then it like blows up. And also, I learned more about the evidence that we have that it was written in 500. This is one of the best and most powerful miracles in the Bible. But it's covered up by everybody except those who diligently seek. And so that's why I wanted to share it with you today.